pray. God, it's good to be here. It's good to be with your people, with our family and friends and neighbors. It's good to have a new day. It's good to have a a new month. It's good to have a new year. But mostly it's good to have new mercies that meet us right where we are today. A hundred billion mercies for this day. More than we can think or dream or imagine. And we are grateful for the God that you are. The God that you have been, the God that you always will be because there is no changing in you. We don't have to guess today what you're like. We know because you have been good and you have been faithful and you have revealed yourself to us in many, many ways. But especially through your perfect word. And we count it a privilege and honor to get to open that up now and encounter you. So Holy Spirit, speak through it. Touch our hearts and have your will in this place. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, so let's just jump right in today. But I, I'm supposed to like make announcements and welcome everybody right now. But I just want to get to preaching. So don't let me forget at the end to make those announcements and do all the welcoming stuff then, okay? Just feel free to yell at me. So if you have a Bible this morning, let's go to Matthew chapter 2. And if you're like me, uh, your heart, your mind is probably in need of some deep detoxing kind of work today because there's been some vegging out and some football consuming and there's been a lot of food consuming and a lot of places going kind of stuff. And so today I just need a deep detox of my mind and my heart and no better place to turn for that than God's Word. In Matthew, we're in a sermon series right now called Different. We're walking through verse by verse through Matthew's account of the gospel, a sermon series that we're calling Different. And so far, we've seen that Jesus came from a very different kind of family. Jesus came into the world in a very different sort of way. And what I want you to see today is that Jesus is a very different baby than any baby that has ever lived in this world. Everything about this baby that we just celebrated here at Christmas time, everything about him is different. And when he arrived in this world, you knew something was different about him because suddenly it seemed as if everything started to orbit around that little baby in a manger. You cannot deny the gravitational force that that baby, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, has in this world. Why? Because he is different. The biblical word for that word different, you might say, is holy. There is none like him. He is in a class all by himself. He has no peer. He has no rival. There is none that could ever compare to him. Just look at that baby. Nothing seems very different about him, right? I mean, there's no like special glow around him, despite some of the old paintings you might have seen. I don't think there was a halo floating over that little baby's head. I mean, he didn't come into the world that night speaking Hebrew or French or Swahili. He didn't do any of that. He wore diapers. He spit up. He slobbered, right? He had snotty noses like all babies have from time to time. But beyond all of that, this baby is different, from all other babies. And as we wrap up chapter 2 of Matthew today and really kind of the Christmassy parts of the gospel of Matthew, I want to show you three things about this baby today that make him so different from any other baby that's ever lived. And congratulations, there's a bunch of babies in the room today and it's sweet noises to get to hear them today. So let's talk about these three things out of Matthew chapter 2 that make this baby Jesus different from any other baby that's ever lived. The first thing is this, kind of on a dark note, 
He's the object of hate. He's the object of hate. Let's look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. The Bible says, after they were gone, and that word they is referring to the wise men. We read that part of the story last week as we had like 500 children up here that we were trying to corral, right? So as those wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. Herod is really sort of the king over that region at that time. And this king wants to kill this baby. He's the object of the king's hate. Verse 14, so he, that is Joseph, got up. He took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. You're going to hear Matthew drop that phrase, through the prophet, through the prophet. He's going to do that several times in our verses we're going to look at today. He says he stayed there in Egypt until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. What did the prophet say that's being fulfilled? The prophet said, out of Egypt, I have called my son. This baby is the object of hate. Herod wants this baby dead. Now, who puts out a hit on a baby. Well, Herod does. And, and I don't have enough time today to give you all the history to help you really kind of understand just how demented and violent and what kind of lunatic this Herod was. Herod literally will kill anybody that he deems is in his way. History tells us that he killed one of his wives. He killed his children. He would stop at nothing if he felt like he was threatened. And now he sets his sights on a newborn baby born to a young Jewish couple who are living beneath the poverty line. Why in the world would he feel threatened by a baby like that? Now, I want you to understand that this morning, Herod's actions are pure evil. Can we just agree with that? His actions are pure evil. But his intensity, his intensity toward Jesus, I think is appropriate. And maybe that doesn't make sense to you right off the bat. Here's what I want to say. Herod's actions are wrong. But is it related to Jesus? His response to Jesus, as wrong as it is, was dialed all the way up to a 10. And I think that's right. C.S. Lewis said that when people encounter Jesus through the Gospels, through Jesus' earthly life, people responded to Jesus in one of three ways. They either ran from him because they were afraid of him. Had uh, one of our men that came in my office this morning to pray with me, Mr. Chuck Waldrop, and he was telling me about when uh, his wife, when they were a young couple, Miss Karen, they're still a young couple, Miss Karen's still young, but she's married to an old guy, man, I'm telling you. But when they were a young couple and she was telling him, hey, I want to raise our family in church, they just began to have a family, you know. And he said, yeah, I, I agree with that. But he didn't know the Lord. Never been saved. And so he starts going to church with her. And he would find himself quickly trying to close up the Bible. Felt like every time the Holy Spirit began to try to speak to him and convict him and draw him, Chuck was running. C.S. Lewis says that's, that's one way that people respond to Jesus. They run from him in fear. Second way that people respond to Jesus is they run to him with hate. They, they want to kill him. They, they, they don't want him to have any part of their life. And the third way that people uh, 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 respond to Jesus is they run to him to adore him. They run to him 
to worship him. C.S. Lewis goes on to say this. He says, what we don't see in the life of Jesus is mild indifference toward him. Nobody encountered the person and the claims and the teachings of Jesus and just went, yeah, okay. Nobody did that. Nobody did that. Their response toward Jesus was always one of fear or hatred or worship. See, Jesus was a polarizing person, and he still is today. There's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. If you pay even a little bit of attention to what Jesus says and to what Jesus does, then as a thinking person, there's no way you could just go, eh. There's no way you could just be indifferent to who he says he is and the things that he does. Some things and some people are so epically important, you cannot be neutral. You cannot be neutral about them. Herod was evil, but he was not indifferent about Jesus. Why? Because he knew this baby is different. He knew this baby is like no other. And by the way, that baby grew up and he said a lot of very different things from what other rabbis were saying. He said things like, I am the way. People still don't like that about him. Because he didn't say, I'm a way. He said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to God except they come through me. He said other things like, deny yourself. It ain't about you, Bubba. That's what he said in the Joel translation of that. He said, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Listen, if you pay even the slightest attention to Jesus, to the things he does, to the things that he says, you're either going to run from him in fear, you're going to run to him in hate, or you're going to run to him to bow down to him as your Savior and your Lord and to worship him. Why? Because Jesus, he demands, he demands. And he can demand, by the way. That's his right. That's his prerogative because he's the king of all kings. And he's the Lord of all lords. You know, you can demand something to me and I might go, hey, who do you think you are? But Jesus can demand all he wants. Because this whole world, is his. we just sang about that, right? And Jesus demands our all. Get this today. Jesus did not come into this world to make your life easier. Jesus didn't come into this world to help you find yourself. Jesus didn't come into this world to help you figure out how to live your truth. Listen, Jesus did not come into this world to become your life coach. He didn't come to give you some helpful tips to try to make you a better person. No, Jesus came to save you from your sin, to be your Savior, to be your Lord. He came into this world to take over your entire life. Jesus didn't come into this world to pick you up and just sort of dust you off and polish you up. He came to put to death all the old, all the sin, and to make you brand new. That's why he came. And if you're really into you, you're not going to love Jesus. See, that was Herod's problem. Herod was really into Herod. And because he was really into Herod, when he encountered Jesus, his response was hate. 
Jesus was the object of his hate. Listen, Jesus didn't come here to claim his little part of your life. He didn't come here just to take his position among a thousand other things in your life. Jesus came to take over your life. Jesus has come to be your life, to be your king, to make you his servant, not the other way around. Herod wanted to be king and make Jesus his servant, but Jesus has come to be king and call us to be servants. And if you're hearing what I'm telling you today, your response right now, some of you are pulling a chuck. You're closing your Bible up. You're like, I don't like this. You're running to Jesus. You're running from Jesus in fear because he's demanding too much. He's calling on me for too much. Or you may be hearing this and going, this is why I hate Jesus, because he's all into Jesus and he's not into me, and I hate him for that. Or maybe today you're reminded of just why you love him like you do. And you're running to him to worship him. For Herod, Jesus is the object of his hate. It's why Jesus is the object of a lot of people's hate today. They would say, well, if he does exist, if he really is real, then he exists to help me, to be my servant, to affirm me. You know, Herod, as evil as he is, he got something right, didn't he? He was wide open when it came to Jesus. He might not could say the same about us, Brother Jimmy, today. But we could at least say that about Herod, that when it came to Jesus, he was wide open. When it comes to Jesus, you can either crown him or you can kill him. But there's no middle ground where you get to sit and be comfortable with him. Crown him or kill him. Now, not only was this baby the object of hate, but second, he's the promise of hope. Now listen, here's where I know our minds are a little sluggish today. If you need to stand up and slap yourself in the face for a minute just to wake yourself up, let's go. But I want to show you, I told you we're detoxing with a deep dive into God's word this morning, all right? I'm not like showing y'all mercy like I know they're tired, it's holidays, nobody's into it. No mercy today. We're diving in. I want you to see number two, Jesus is the promise of hope. Verse 16, Matthew chapter 2, then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, by the way, wise men typically outwit people, he flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then, here goes Matthew again, grabbing the Old Testament. He says, then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they, the children, are no more. Right there in verse 18, Matthew's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31. And before I take us back to Jeremiah 31, I want to bounce back to verse 15. We read it, but I kind of skipped over it. In verse 15 of Matthew chapter 2, Matthew's quoting out of Hosea, Hosea chapter 11. So he's quoting two prophets specifically here in chapter 2, Hosea and Jeremiah. And here's the thing, both of these prophets lived hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And listen, if you're not familiar with the story of the Bible and you just picked up a Bible and read Hosea 11, or you picked up a Bible and just read Jeremiah chapter 31, 
you might not, in fact, you probably wouldn't read that and go, oh, Hosea's talking about Jesus. You wouldn't read Jeremiah 31 and think, oh, he's talking about Jesus. But Hosea and Jeremiah are talking about Jesus. And for those of us who are learning our Bible, none of us know it. It is a living, breathing Word of God. But those of us who are learning and growing in the Word of God, we are learning this about God's Word. We sort of read it from the back to the front. We sort of read it from the end to the beginning because we know Jesus is there in the New Testament. We know how He came. We know why He came. We know what He did. We know how He died on the cross. We know how God raised Him from the dead. And because we know all of that, when we go back to the Old Testament, we read that, and it sort of starts coming to life, doesn't it? We start kind of going, oh, wait a minute. That's, that's pointing to Jesus, and that's talking about Jesus. It's about Jesus the entire time. And Matthew here is really wanting. Remember, he's a Jewish fellow, right? And his heart's burdened for his Jewish friends and his family. And he's especially wanting his Jewish readers to see that connection of Old Testament to New Testament. Because the Old Testament was their scripture. It still is their scripture. And Matthew wants the Jewish people to see Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was written in your scriptures. He wants them to see that Jesus is the perfect embodiment of their entire story out of the Old Testament. And that's why he's dropping these Old Testament verses in Matthew chapter 2. So let's bounce back to that first prophecy. Dive in. Don't fall asleep on me now, all right? That, we've partied, y'all. We've celebrated. We've watched football. We've ate. It's a new year. Let's go. Amen? Amen? All right. Pull up your big boy britches now. Let's go. So back to verse 15, the first prophecy he spoke of. He said, He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. And here's what the prophet said, Out of Egypt I called my son. Well, now a Jewish person would read that and go, Well, we know what he's talking about. His son refers to the nation of Israel. It refers to God's people. They were in Egypt, right? They were slaves in Egypt, 400 plus years. But God brought them out of Egypt. And that's, that's all true. And you remember that story, right? You remember the story of God's people being enslaved in Egypt? You remember that? And then God brought them out of Egypt. Everybody say out of Egypt. All right? But then when they were coming out of Egypt, Pharaoh and his army are chasing them, right? And they got to the Red Sea and they went in the water. Everybody say in the water. But then they came out of the water. Say out of the water. That's right. They came out of the water. But the Egyptian army didn't come out of the water. God drowned all those folks in that sea. They come up out of the water, and then for 40 years, everybody say 40. 40. They were tested in the what? In the wilderness. Can you say the wilderness? And after those 40 years of being tested in the wilderness, they get over into that promised land, and the 12 tribes, everybody say 12. The 12 tribes start taking their places, do they not? Are you familiar with your Old Testament history? And then in Joshua chapter 8, Joshua goes up on a mountain and he preaches a message. He kind of brings the new covenant back to the people. He preaches a message from the mountain. Say, message from the mountain. All right, so when Matthew says, hey, y'all remember that verse back there? And the Jewish people are going, yeah, that's all about our story. Matthew's going, well, there's more to it than that. Because that whole story is pointing to somebody else. All of those events are pointing to somebody else. Here's what Matthew is doing here. The reason Matthew drops that verse from Hosea in here in chapter 2 is he's going to show us, and especially his Jewish friends, that the entire Old Testament is about Jesus. 
So here's what Matthew's about to do. This is going to kind of blow your mind. It blows my mind. Because if we've just read Matthew, we're like, oh, it's just Matthew, right? But when you read Matthew 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, lo and behold, it's like Matthew says, all right, here's the train track of the Old Testament. Let me lay one right down next to it that matches it. Because I want you to see what that whole story is about. Matthew chapter 2, Matthew said Jesus went into where? Egypt. But God brought him out of Egypt. Everybody say out of Egypt. Out of Egypt. And then we get to Matthew chapter 3. If you're following along in your Bible, you might see a heading there in your Bible. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus goes in the water. Everybody say in the water. But Jesus came out of the water. Everybody say out of the water. And then when Jesus came out of the water, he went into the wilderness where he was tested for how many? 40. Not years, but for 40 days. And then after he was tested for those 40 days, he, he begins to assemble not the 12 tribes of Israel, but he begins to assemble the 12 disciples. That's right. Matthew chapter 4. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus goes up on a mountain to preach a sermon to the people. We call that the what? The Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Matthew's doing. He's going, it's all about Jesus. He's jumping up and down saying this whole story. Egypt, the Pharaoh coming out, the Red Sea, the wandering in the wilderness, the wandering in the wilderness, the 12 trials, all of that. It's all about Jesus. This Jesus is different. You see, he wants them to know this Jesus is different from any other man. This Jesus is different from any other rabbi. This Jesus is different from everybody else that ever claimed to be the Messiah. This Jesus alone is the perfect embodiment of the entire Old Testament. And so that's the significance of that first quote there, right, in verse 15. The second one in verse 18, don't let this deflate you, but the second one in verse 18, you're going to have to work a little harder with me. All right? We got to lean in a little bit more. Let's get to it. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then, here we go, what was spoken through Jeremiah. The other prophet was Hosea. Here's the second one, it's Jeremiah. He said, what was spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet was fulfilled. What did Jeremiah say? A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. The children are no more. Matthew says what happened to those babies in Bethlehem and around Bethlehem, he says that's in fulfillment of what Jeremiah had said. Hundreds, 600 years before it happened. How? How could that? What does that have? What does Rachel and all that business and Jeremiah have to do with Herod killing all these babies in and around Bethlehem? Well, Matthew, in verse 18, he's quoting out of Jeremiah chapter 31. In Jeremiah chapter 31, in the context of Jeremiah chapter 31 is this. You probably remember this. The kids remember this from their timeline. The Babylonians in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah chapter 31 have come into the southern kingdom of God's people. And they've slaughtered many. And they've destroyed the nation. And they've taken people especially young ones like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, taking them away from home, 
taking them into captivity into Babylon. Look at verse 18 again. This is what Jeremiah is talking about. He says, the voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children. They're gone. And she refused to be consoled because they are no more. In other words, the people were weeping and they could not stop weeping because, hey, the children are no more. And that means the future is no more. And that means hope is no more. And that means all the promises that God has made to us are no more. Hopeless. Well, who is Rachel? Well, Rachel is symbolically being used there in Jeremiah chapter 31. She had lived hundreds of years before the Babylonian captivity. She was married to a man by the name of Jacob. You could call them the mother and the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, Joseph and all of his brothers, if you remember that. So for Jeremiah to say, Rachel was weeping, that's kind of like maybe you said, some of us who are old enough to remember, I was talking to my nine-year-old the other day about the Twin Towers when they fell back in 2001, and she didn't know what I was talking about. I thought, oh my goodness, I got to talk about this more with her. You know, it was my world, my reality, and she doesn't know about that. But I remember hearing it said, and I may have said it even back when that happened in those days, about Lady Liberty is weeping today. She wasn't literally weeping, but it was symbolic that there had been an epic tragedy. Hurt and harm had happened right here at home. And so when Jeremiah says Rachel is weeping and can't be comforted or consoled, he, he, what he's doing is helping us understand the state of the nation at that time. All their hope was gone. Their children are gone. The future is gone. Hope is gone. The promises of God are gone. So in one sense, in chapter 31 of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is right there in real time, like a reporter on the scene. And he's saying the entire nation is mourning. There's no comfort. There's no hope for them. All the children are gone. No future. All the promises of God, they're gone. But then Matthew comes on the scene now, and Matthew says, hey, wait a minute. Jeremiah wasn't just talking about the tragedy that happened then. He was also pointing. He may not have known it, but God knew. God was pointing to another tragedy that would happen later into the future. Matthew's saying there's a whole nother level to what Jeremiah's saying. Yes, it was about the Babylonians and what they did, but it's also pointing us to what Herod has done here in Matthew chapter 2. What has Herod done? Herod slaughtered all these babies, two years old and under, all these boy babies. And if you were a shepherd around Bethlehem then, if you were a wise man, a wise man around Bethlehem then? Maybe you were just a common innkeeper around Bethlehem then, and you had heard the rumor that the king of the Jews has been born in Bethlehem. You had heard that the Messiah had come. What you've long waited for, all oh, the hope, the thrill, the joy that came. But now... Every baby boy in that region, two years old and younger, has been slaughtered. And now you're right back to where the people were in the Babylonian captivity. Now again, the children are gone. And with the children, the promise of God for Messiah is gone with it. That's where the people were. If the Messiah is dead, if he got caught up in this evil act of Herod, if the Messiah is dead, then hope is dead. 
then our future's dead. Then the promises of God are dead. But you know and I know that Jesus wasn't dead. Because God had sent an angel to warn Joseph in a dream what was going on. And so Joseph had obeyed the Lord. You know, it's hard to measure just how horrific those moments might have been. Those days, weeks, months in and around Bethlehem. No more sound like that sweet sound that I hear up there, right? The grief, the sorrow that those people must have experienced in many ways for them, it felt like it did when the Babylonians had come and invaded. All hope seemed lost. For these people, it was a time of being engulfed by the darkness. But God, God was preserving. God was keeping. God was protecting. And as long as Jesus is alive, there's hope. As long as Jesus is alive, there's a future. As long as Jesus is alive, the promises of God are yes and amen. Same is true today. If Jesus is alive right now, then Chris, we have hope. If he's alive right now, then we have a future. If he's alive, then right now the promises for God are active and alive and working in our lives. Isn't it cool how Matthew just drops these verses in there? But hey, here's the thing about Matthew. He's a Jewish fella, and he knows these Jewish people that he's trying to share this hope with. He knows they know their Bible. He knows he didn't have to copy and paste all of Jeremiah chapter 31. All he had to do was grab a verse out of it, put it over here, and the people knew the word, their minds would do the rest. They would take that one little line that Matthew dropped in there, and they would wrap it with all the rest of the context around it from Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, how many of you have got Jeremiah chapter 31 memorized? Just go ahead and raise your hand. What have y'all been doing with your time? Everybody should have, I'm just kidding. I don't have Jeremiah 31 memorized, but thank the Lord. He's preserved it in his word. Let's look at it. We're going to look at the verses right there before, right after. Jeremiah 31, verse 15. This is what the Lord says. A voice was heard in Ramah, a lament with bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. That's the part that Matthew copied and pasted, right? Right? He didn't have to copy and paste the next part because the people would just keep on quoting it. Here's what happens next. Verse 16, this is what the Lord says. Keep your voice from weeping. What? And your eyes from tears. For the reward for your work will come. This is the Lord's declaration and your children will return from the enemy's land. Watch this. This is maybe the most beautiful line. There is hope for your future. 
There's hope for your future. This is the Lord's declaration. This isn't just anybody saying there's hope for your future. This is the Lord saying there is hope for your future and your children, children will return to their own territory. Here's what God was saying to his people in Jeremiah when all seemed lost. Hope is not lost. Your future is not lost. The promises of God are not lost. God was saying to them during the Babylonian captivity, I'm bringing hope home. Your hope's coming back. There will be a future for you. This dark moment in your life is not the end of the story. This is not the end of the story. God says, I keep my promises. And Matthew says all of that was pointing to all the grief and all the pain in Bethlehem over what Herod had done. But to them, God was whispering the same thing. This is not the end of the story. Your hope is very much alive. Your future is very much alive. The promises of God, very much alive. This dark moment in Bethlehem is not the end of the story. It's the beginning. It's the beginning of the story. Maybe today you're here and you are just about to lose hope. That, that thought is finding lodging in your mind these days. That you're just hanging by a thread on the hope. You're slowly draining of any hope. A new year has rolled around and it stinks just like the last year did as far as you're concerned. It's hard to find hope for this day. It's hard to find any hope for this new year that it will have anything good for you in it. And you need to hear from the Lord today. There is hope for you because Jesus is still alive. There's a future for you today because Jesus is still alive. The promises of God are yes and amen today for you because Jesus is still alive. And you say, Pastor, but you don't know what's going on in my life. You don't know how heavy my stuff is. I don't, and I wouldn't pretend to, but I know the King of kings and the Lord of lords is far heavier than the heaviness of your stuff and the heaviness of my stuff. He outweighs it all. Listen, I don't know why the events with the Babylonians happened, I don't know. I don't know why the events around Bethlehem happened. I don't know. I don't know why the events in your life are playing out the way they're playing out. I don't know. But I know this. They're not pointless. I can't tell you why. I've been asked a thousand times in my career, why, Pastor? I don't know why. But I know what? I know it is not without a point. I know it's not without a purpose. I know it's not with, without a plan. I, I know that. I know that much. I don't know anything else, but I know that. I know God has a plan for you. and He has a purpose for you. And his promises for you. Even in the midst of your pain. And today he's reminding you this is not how your story's going to end. If you know Jesus today, 
and you can do something like this, what I'm about to tell you. If you know Jesus today and you can hold on tenaciously to a little verse of Scripture that goes by the name Romans 8, 28. And that, that little verse of Scripture says, God works. He works all things together for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. If you know Jesus today and you can just hang on to that promise by the name of Romans 8, 28, then you're going to make it. And you can make it through anything. And by the way, I think this is how, as God's people, we go toe-to-toe, face-to-face with two really big giants that we deal with in our life pretty often. I do. Maybe you don't, but I do. Two pretty big giants that I face, anxiety and bitterness. Anybody relate? Anxiety says, God, I don't trust you to get it right. Is that right? Isn't that what we're saying to God in those moments? As real as those moments are, God, I'm pacing the floor, I'm wringing my hands, I'm all up in knots. Because I don't trust you're good enough or big enough or strong enough or close enough to get it right. Bitterness says, God, you got it wrong. You got it wrong. And we battle with those giants so often in our lives. But right here, in a little piece of the Christmas story, we're reminded how to battle those giants. We don't believe what we feel. Feelings are a lovely thing that God gave us. Messed up with sin, they will lie like the devil to us, though. We don't go with what we feel. We go with what we know. And, Alan, I know. I don't know why Babylon went down. I don't know why Bethlehem went down. To the young man at a party that I talked to a couple nights ago, young father, young husband, whose heart is broken. He stood there telling me, I'm just trying to trust the promises of God. Fight on, young man, fight on. Because that's how we fight the monsters of anxiety. That's how we fight the monsters of bitterness is we say, I am fighting to believe and to hold on to the truth that God is for me. He's not against me. And God works all things together for my good and for his glory. And I'm believing him for that. I'm trusting him for that. Don't let your emotions convince you of lies. Believe that God is good. He does have a future for you, a hope for you. His promises are for you. See, Jesus for some was an object of hate, but for others, he is the promise of hope. But then third and last, and this one's going to be fast, so be ready. This baby's different because he, unlike any other babies, he's the provider of grace. Every other baby that's ever been born in this world needed grace. This baby, he didn't need grace. He came to give it. He's the provider of grace. Look at verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt 
saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was just as jacked up as his father was, by the way, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. He goes to the country. That's where he goes north. And then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth. Watch, here goes Matthew again. To fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Notice this time Matthew says the prophets. He doesn't single out one. It was just the general consensus of the prophets that this baby would be raised up in a place like this. They were clear. The prophets in the Old Testament were clear that the Messiah would be despised, right? They were clear that he would be a reject. He would be rejected. That he wouldn't have an impressive portfolio This Messiah, they had prophesied that he would be really an outcast in society. And Nazareth was headquarters for outcasts. That's the perfect place for somebody who's been prophesied about to be an outcast. If you were from Nazareth or you were a Nazarene, you were at the bottom of the ladder in society. Nazareth and Nazarenes were merely punchlines to jokes. It was where the backwards sort of misfit people lived. Is that sounding like home to any of y'all in here? (laughs) And yet, God chose those people to surround his son. God put his son in that place And among those people, for the first 30 years of his life, think of that. The one that spoke all those stars into existence we sang about earlier, right? And yet he descended into this world as low as he could go. Into the form of a baby, living his life in the ghettos of Podunkville. The neighborhoods are not nice there. The school system is not strong there. Jesus left heaven and descended as far down as he could. And from there, it only got worse. When he leaves Nazareth, and by the way, he had to leave Nazareth, they tried to push him off a cliff. His own people, the misfits, tried to push Jesus off the cliff. He's rejected by the rejects. Some of y'all thought your junior high days were hard. Jesus was rejected by the rejects, and from there he experiences only more rejection and humiliation and slander. His enemies want to kill him, and his friends deny him, and they betray him. But for all of those people, including us. For all of us, he did all of that, Ray, to die on the cross, to take your sin and my sin, to reconcile us to God. That baby who would be wrapped in cloths and laid in a manger, he would later be wrapped in cloths and laid in a tomb. See, none of us went looking for Jesus. It was grace 
that brought him looking for us. And he went to the lowest of the low. That's where he found me. Isn't that where he found you? Because compared to him, we're all the lowest of the low. The king of glory became the reject of rejects. He descended into obscurity and poverty and brokenness and lived in Nazareth for 30 years. Some of y'all are too snobby to want to be there for 30 minutes. And that's where he lived for 30 years. He is almighty God, and yet he descended so low that he became utterly useless in the eyes of the world. But that utterly useless one is none other than God himself who had come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's grace. That's what makes this baby different. Yes, he's the object of hate. He's the provider of hope, but he's also the provider of grace. I love what Paul says. Look at this, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Paul's talking to a bunch of Christians like most of us, right? And he says, well, you know, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich for your sake, just put your name right there, for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. Philippians 2, Paul says he emptied himself and he took on the form of a foot-washing servant and he was obedient to death died like a common criminal on a cross between two thieves. Now that sounds like a bunch of foolishness to people that aren't believing, but to those of us who know that is the plan of God, that is the power of God to reconcile us to a relationship with God. And maybe you're here today and you're like my friend Chuck back there. Maybe you're running from God. You're afraid of just what life would look like if you gave him your life. You're afraid of what he might just do in your life if you just surrendered everything to him. Maybe you came fearful today. Or maybe you came today hating God. Maybe you're bitter. You think, God, you've gotten so much wrong. And now there's hatred in your heart toward God. Or maybe like Herod, you're so into you, you can't be into him. Can I suggest today that however you might have dealt with Jesus in 2022, if you were running from him in fear or running to him with hate, maybe 2023 you start running to him to worship him, to adore him. To love him. Here's good news today, church. First day of a new week. First day of a new month. First day of a new year. Eight billion mercies, brand new today, that have your name on it. You can keep running. You can keep hating. Or today you can come to him and bow your life before him and worship him, love him as Savior 
and Lord. He will be, and he is, your promise of hope. It may be dark in your life right now, but hope's very much alive. And he is and will be your provider of grace. So God, we bow our hearts before you, grateful for your word, your truth, thankful that you have embedded all throughout your word reminders and signals, beacons for us in it that there is hope, there is future, there are promises to be claimed. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment, I want to ask you, maybe today you're saying, hey, pastor, I, I, I am like that guy you're talking about, old Chuck. I've been holding back. And I've been holding back because I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid to give Jesus my life. Or I'm afraid to give Jesus my whole life. My comfort level is to give him part of my life, but I have been afraid to give him my life. Pastor, would you pray for me today? I will. Maybe you're here today and you would say, hey, listen, I'm, I'm in bitterness right now toward God. I'm in that dark place. I think he's gotten it wrong. I feel like the Babylonians have crushed me. I feel like I'm one of the people in Bethlehem and I've watched my hope right off into the sunset. And I'm struggling, Pastor, with that today. Would you pray for me? Because I don't want to live that way. I want to be free from that. And today I need the joy of the Lord to be my strength. I certainly will pray for you. I don't believe it's the plan of God that you start a new year with fear and bitterness ruling and reigning on the throne of your life. There's only one, can you agree with me this morning? There's only one who's worthy to sit on the throne of your life this year. And his name is not anxiety. His name is not bitterness. His name is Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the King of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. Whether you recognize it or not, he is. And he's worthy. So Holy Spirit, would you draw us to Jesus that he might be where he deserves to be in our lives today. We ask it in his name. I want to invite you to stand and let's worship the Lord together.